Welcome to episode 271 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was uploaded on Sunday, 4th of April, 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. The last couple of shows were UK-focused This one shifts to the USA. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's hour and a half long episode, I talk with American academics Meredith Glazer and Kevin Kryzak. We discuss President Biden's American jobs plan and how Pete Buttigieg is shaping up to be the most people-friendly transportation secretary since John Volpe in the early 1970s. Like Buttigieg, uh, Volpe also cycled to the office. More about that on a forthcoming article on Forbes.com. Back to today, and both my guests, as you'll soon hear, are American. Although without even the hint of a Dutch accent, Meredith has lived in the Netherlands for some years. She's a researcher and lecturer at the University of Amsterdam and one of the principals behind the very popular with planners summer school at the university's Urban Cycling Institute. Kevin is Professor of Environmental Design at the University of Colorado Boulder. Along with Meredith, he has written a paper on the peddling potential of 55 American cities uh, during the pandemic. I've got uh, two folks on here, uh, American folks, and one is 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 not in America, is in bicyclist's paradise, basically, uh, and so that person would be Meredith. Hi, Meredith. How's it going across there in Amsterdam? Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's um, the weather is as Dutch as usual. And um, but the bike paths are as red and uh, glorious as usual. And you've got a bit of a, a wee bit of a, a political problem across there at the moment with with Rutte, who, who famously, you know, bicycle advocates post uh, videos of him cycling to you know the, the royalty, to the palace, and 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 to parliament, etc. But he has only just survived a, a vote of no confidence. Yeah. Um... I am not allowed to vote in this country, Ah. which puts me at a very unique um, situation where uh, I can vote on a local level, but not um, at the national level. So while I do have, um, you know, impressions of what's going on in the national level, I I don't so much participate. Um, So local issues are much more familiar to me than uh, than the national level. 
the reason I was going to ask that, we will bring Kevin in in a minute, but I just, the reason I was, I, I was asking that was because, and, and mentioning how it's bicyclist paradise. So we, we tend to think of the Netherlands as just, you know, planning to the nth degree. Everything is, you know, incredibly well organized. And yet the, 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 the pandemic response has been shambolic. Yeah. So it's really strange how such an organized country is disorganized on something as 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 big. It, is that is that resonating in the Netherlands? Is is that one of the reasons why he's he's faced this Nova, or is it literally just because he lied? Yeah, I don't really know. But I mean, as as a resident, I've I've gone through these waves of feeling confident in the response, and then feeling very. Yeah, very opposite, very like, what are you doing? How could this be possible? Why are my kids going back in school right now? Or, um, you know, why I'm still seeing, you know, many groups of people congregating in parks, drinking beer <laughs> with, with, the, with the cops just rolling by and not doing anything. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a very interesting situation. Um, and um yeah i mean i don't know i don't know what else well it's just how can a country plan so brilliantly in transport and then screw mm. up in 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 something like public health which is which is a- well yeah actually you know i don't know if it's i i don't know if it would agree that like they plan so meticulously because actually one of the most beautiful things about cycling in the Netherlands is that it is sort of chaotic and organic um, and that there are very much some places that are not planned. Um, and in fact, the whole emergence of site of cycling or re-emergence of cycling in the Netherlands after the second world war, I mean, it was just a perfect storm of events and you know this all too well. Um, so, you know, it was coming together of social movements, of, uh, of advocacy, of um, numerous things going on that, that resulted in what we have today here. So I, I'm not sure if it's like a perfect planning paradise. In fact, I think it's, a, it's definitely, you know, I think the Dutch pride themselves on tolerance. And um, I mean, it's very noticeable even in, in the difference of culture that I have uh, being American and, uh, and those who are local, you know, Dutch, national Dutch in how we approach police officers. You know, the Dutch approach a police officer like it's just it's just a regular person. It's nothing to be. There's no hierarchy um, I've seen some arguments between, you know, full on arguments, whereas me as an American, oh, I mean, the police officer, you know, you call them Mr. It's, you know, it's a very clear, um, it's a very clear hierarchy of power. So I don't know, I think there's, there's some interesting connections there that that maybe could be explored with relation to the pandemic. Mm. And let's bring in Kevin. And I'm, I'm going to ask you roughly the same question here because there was a shambolic response before a certain election in America. There now has been a very rapid rollout of uh, vaccinations by the newcomer. So from a planning perspective, was the previous 
administration not very good at planning and this administration kind of a lot better at planning? Kevin. <laughs> Thanks, Carlton. That's a really interesting question because I'm not so sure that it's tied to planning as it is to it's just sheer politics. Uh, yes, the new administration after this certain election, you know, they want to try and button down and uh, get a little bit more strong of a hold on what's going what's going on. Now, if that's planning, if that's kind of regulatory structures, if that's telling people. Uh, a little bit more about the uh, types of freedoms that they uh, are allowed to have or not allowed to have. Yeah, you can think of it in terms of planning, but uh, there's no diff- there's no doubt that there's a, a different philosophy and there's a different approach that's in the air. So I have mentioned uh, the pandemic and planning um, as a way of introduction to, to both of you, and that's very much because that's what we'll be we'll be talking about, as well as uh, as the American Jobs Plan, etc. Uh, but before we get into the, the 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 heart of the show, the meat, um, let's let's hear from both of you. And and and, and for lots of people, it'd be fascinating to hear why why Meredith is American but in the Netherlands. But let's let's hear from both of you on um, first of all your job titles, what your your actually your research um, interests are, uh, and and then maybe why you are in certain places. So Kevin, why? You are where you are, and Meredith, where you are. So, Meredith, let's start with you, and let's find out first of all why are you in Amsterdam. <laughs> it's a really good question. It could be the entire episode, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. So, I am currently a researcher and lecturer at the Urban Cycling Institute at the University of Amsterdam. Um, and why I came to Amsterdam? I mean, that's a that's a really good question. It, I mean. I've always wanted to live abroad um, as a young American. In fact, my mother reminds me often, you used to say as a little girl, you're tired of sitting in the car and that you want to you wanna live somewhere where you don't need to have a car. And well, that first came true when I went to UC Davis mm-hmm. <laughs> for undergrad degree, which is a, um, a city pretty well known for, um, at least in the American context, um, a pretty a pretty robust cycling culture. Um, and infrastructure. And then, I'm sorry? And infrastructure. Yes, know, an infrastructure. A, a yeah, built in, yeah. A Dutch style built infrastructure. Dutch style roundabouts. Hmm. And yeah. Um, and then uh, and then I moved to Japan, actually, where I also lived car free and with a, um, a Dutch style um, bike, but Japanese uh, upright bike. Um, and so, yeah, and then now I'm in, now I'm in the Netherlands and I was very, um, I was very interested in living as an adult in another place and to immerse myself in another culture. Um, I had visited the Netherlands several times. I was drawn to their, to the high quality of life here and the culture that has a pretty open mindset and a really incredible appreciation for public life and public space and high quality urban design. Um, and coming out of urban planning school, uh, from UC Berkeley, that was also a big draw to me was, um, was the public space and public life. And, uh, and then cycling ended up being, a being a, a main factor in, in my future here. But originally the, the trip, the, the, the living here, originally I planned to live here for about a year, um, with my now husband. But that has turned into a decade and a house and two children and seven bikes. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Now, Kevin, you are uh, somewhere from an American, North American perspective, is pretty damn cycling friendly. If if um, Boulder is is a is a pretty nice bicycling place, yeah. Yeah, so my family and I have lived here for 12 years now, and frankly, one of the reasons that we did move to Boulder is because of the transportation amenities it provided, cycling being uh, one of them. And so, so, you know, it was really on the agenda for for Boulder to be growing cycling-wise for a number of years in the late 90s and early 2000s. What's interesting is that once they uh, were able to take advantage of the low-hanging fruit, that is the east-west corridors in town, uh, because of the tributaries and the streams and the creeks and whatnot, where you can put uh, bicycling paths down a little bit more easily. When they tried to think about uh, really improving the transportation uh, cycling perspective on north-south routes, that's where things got a little bit more hairy for Boulder. And they haven't been able to have the breakthroughs that they were uh, you know, 15 years ago with some of that low-hanging fruit. And so that's really provided an interesting context, an interesting dynamic with respect to how, you know, transportation provisions, amenities are being provided, sometimes uh, at the expense of cars, but mostly not being provided because it's going to be coming at the expense of cars. And because it's difficult. And because it's more difficult. You can do it, but it's difficult. Yep. The politics are a lot different. So uh, Meredith was talking about uh, Davis. California and Davis and Boulder have kind of seesawed and uh, uh, which is the the biggest you know American city for for bicycling it's either one of those usually and then Portland of course comes in uh, from from a radical um, point of view as well but from your point of view Kevin where where do you see um, Boulder sitting right now compared my question in, in effect is which is the best city in uh in north america no no america because i would they have to bring in montreal wouldn't we so what's the best city in the united states of america for bicycling small town davis large city minneapolis or portland towns of quarter millions or so it's boulder but is boulder's uh, cycling prowess you know exceeding that of davis or portland or minneapolis i doubt it uh, one thing that Boulder really does have going for it is that they now have, you know, almost 85 uh, grade controlled intersections, which is amazing. Uh, so nobody can touch that in terms of bridges and uh, underpasses for, for, for cycling. So that's one that's mm-hmm. one area where they really stand out. But we have to understand that those types of infrastructures, they're pretty costly, $10 million sometimes. As researchers in this field... Uh, and we started talking about this uh, before this particular announcement. Uh, but y- you must be kind of excited. Both of you must be kind of excited, e- even though, uh, Meredith, you're not actually living I- I- in the place at the moment. Mm. But you still must be pretty excited because you're, you're, you're researching. Obviously, you must be excited uh, by the American Jobs Plan uh, announced by uh, President Biden. Is it now two days ago? And And obviously, very much... Um, trailed and supported uh, by uh, by the Transportation Secretary, uh, Pete Buttigieg. So how excited are you? How much of a, a paradigm shift is this going to be? So Mer- Meredith first, what, what are your initial thoughts on the American Jobs Plan? I think it's, well, just from the, reading the articles and, you know, perusing the White House um, website and some other sources, it of course seems really exciting. 
Um, and to hear, you know, these very prominent champions like Jeanette Sadi Khan and, you know, directors at NACDO and these big names who have been supporting, you know, livable streets and innovation in terms of our transportation systems in the U.S., seeing these people support it uh, and hearing their their support for the plan, of course, gives me a lot of confidence. Um, and I'm really curious how it will unfold because uh, at the moment we got some we've got some great numbers that are very promising. Um, you know, 20 million into into uh, roads and um, or sorry, a billion into roads and and road safety. Um, you know, 20,000 miles of highways and roads being upgraded. I mean, yeah, and transit focus. I think uh, these are all very needed um, upgrades. But where I wonder a bit about how the details will unfold, Mm -hmm. like where, where, you know, where do the cities actually come in? Um. So much of these urban, um, so much of the networks and so much of the infrastructure that is going to need to be upgraded, they fall in the hands of cities and regions. Um, and of course, there are some, you know, major bridges and airports and, um, and highways. But what about when they interface with the city? And what about when they interface with our city streets? Um, that very, those very local networks that are used by, you know, the citizens in, in our, um, urban areas. So I think that's, I think that's going to be an interesting part too, um, to, to see what happens in the next, in the next few months and also how the, the negotiations will happen and, you know, what's going, what's going to happen with it. I'm, I'm just curious. It's like a soap opera. (laughs) Hmm. So the Republicans, and this is now a question to, to Kevin, the Republicans have already come out and instantly came out and said, oh, no, this is not bipartisan. You ain't going to get this. We're going we're gonna to kibosh this. And then uh, Biden tweeted the same night saying, I, I do think it's a bipartisan issue, but in effect, we're going to do it anyway. So Kevin, is this something that um, even though the Republicans for many, many years have said, you know, infrastructure, 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 here's now a plan that delivers that infrastructure but they're not going to support it, whereas other things that they haven't wanted to support, they've, they've pushed through, uh, the, the D- Democrats have pushed through anyway. Is this going to be the same thing, or do you think this is going to be um, a huge fight uh, to actually get any of this uh, actually uh, uh, put into law? I think that's a really interesting question, in part because for the first time in a long time, we're talking about a um, type of infrastructure that is, you know, we've long long taken for granted. And the solutions to that type of infrastructure, I'm talking about roadways, have always been divided along party lines. Now, what we have in 2021 is a complete shattering of the previous solutions for those types of remedies. Say, for example, okay, we got an infrastructure problem with respect to transport. What we're going to do is we're going to increase the supply. So the Republicans are going to say, we want more roadways. We want wider roadways. We want more travel lanes, right? And the Republicans are saying, well, you know, or the Democrats are saying, well, you know, there's other ways of getting around town and maybe we want to invest in, in, in transit. 
So that's really changing these days because of you know new technology and new um, frank, frankly realizations about safety and new realizations about issues of climate change. Now, are those types of topics going to have currency for the Republicans? You know, slowly but surely, uh, we're going to be seeing different types of solutions be thrown at transportation-related issues. So I'm I am optimistic insofar as the landscape. Uh, that has typically divided politics in this respect in the country, you know, for the past uh, decade or two decades is is different. And the fact that the Biden administration is really putting the spotlight on new types of infrastructure and on roads about how they can provide new insights and new inspiration for our economy is something that's kind of refreshing. And, and I'm coming straight back to you here, Kevin, as well. But I'll, I'll then uh, ask Meredith the same thing. Um, is bicycling left wing? Is it is it just neutral? Is there anything that mentions bicycling? And I can I could lump in transit here and pedestrians. Is that seen as very much a partisan thing? So bicycling and transit and pedestrian infrastructure, that's absolutely going to be something only Democrats are going to prioritize. Or do you think this the it, it's it's muddier than that? I, I, I'm just uh, basically uh, generalizing. You know, historically, I would say that that's the case. But as we sit in 2021, uh, it's considerably more murky than that. And the reason it's considerably more murky than that is because we have transportation innovations that are shaking this industry in ways that we haven't seen in the prior two, three, four years. And so, you know, those things that look like bicycles they really don't necessarily need to be considered bicycles anymore. They could be, you know, souped up uh, really small electric cars. But the nature in which we design our transportation facilities to accept bicyclists or, you know, huge SUVs, that has a lot to do with the the types of futures that we want to see unfold. But my point here is that you know, as the technology and the technological innovations continue to hit the transportation market, we're going to see cars look a lot more like bikes. And we're going to see bikes look a lot more like cars. <laughs> and so that's going to provide a more murky, uh, more murky, you know, political context for us to understand how and why and where we want different types of vehicles in our cities. Yeah, Canyon, a couple of months ago, brought out, in effect, a very small very, very small. It looks like an SUV, but it's actually just a, a small car. But it's a bicycle as well. It's a, it's 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 you know a, a big bicycle maker making a car is is exactly what you're saying there. They're, they're, they're going to they're going to merge. They're going to they're going to smash together. And the outstanding question here, uh, Carlton, is where in our existing transportation system should a vehicle like that be housed? Hmm. Because right now, if we try to house it on our city streets. Yes, with good reason. It's unsafe. But yet, if we change our city streets to accommodate those types of more fuel-efficient, more equitable, and safer types of vehicles, we're going to be in much stronger hands. So, Meredith, you're living in, in a place which, which is tackling and, and is, is, is going through these kind of changes already yeah. and, and has been fractured for many years because you, you've got these micro cars yeah. that are already... I've been in Amsterdam yeah. where it's like, wow, there's a car, but it's one of these micro cars... So how does that fit um, into the system? And also, let, let's, let's talk about, after, after you answer that one, also tell me about uh, left-wing, right-wing, because obviously in, in the Netherlands, you know, cycling is not a political issue at all. 
So first of mm. all, the, the kind of vehicles you, you're seeing and, and how that might play elsewhere from the, the, the Amsterdam or the Dutch example, mm-hmm. and then the, the, the politics from, from where you're sitting. Yeah. Um, wow. Really good questions. Um, so the types of vehicles, the type of vehicle question is really interesting because right now there's a huge influx in all types of these small, lightweight electric vehicles, right? The LEV types of um, also logistics vehicles, right? So there's these really small vans that are going on the streets. They're parking up on sidewalks. Um, there's really small uh, or large actually cargo bikes, you know, with like a front box. Um, there's, there's, there's all these different types of forms and you kind of wonder like, well, wait, is this a bike? Is it, uh, is it a car? Yeah. It's getting very murky, just like what Kevin said. And, uh, but we're still seeing that, you know, at least in Amsterdam here, you know, they're leaning on, um, the bicycle as sort of the emblematic, um, um, form of how, you know, how to dictate what the infrastructure is. So what, what they're, what a lot of, um, the streets here are doing, um, or, or what the changes they're making on streets here is incorporating a, a bicycle street approach. Um, and they're also being very strategic about traffic circulation in general. So the newest, you know, policies, um, recommended for the city, uh, are recommended by the city include um, that to get you know to get across the city by bike should be the fastest uh, way you know to get straight through the city um, and to get through by car is essentially impossible. You have to go all the way around the city. So the circulation uh, plan is encouraging uh, an, an increase in space for for bikes and these other types of vehicles, just simply because there are fewer cars going through the city. Um, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And then you're, you're, but then you're also living somewhere where this isn't a political issue. This isn't, you know, oh, that's a lefty thing to I, do. You know, I, I disagree that it's not political. It's not like an apolitical um, topic. Um, but I, um, I have been told by, and I've heard, you know, many, even conservative Republican, or not, I'm sorry, I have heard many conservative politicians here say and admit that it's not a political issue. But where we do see the political issue coming out is the continued investment in highway expansions and car-based infrastructure. Mm. Um, so on the one hand, you know, cities in the Netherlands, especially like Utrecht, Groningen, uh, and Amsterdam, they envision themselves being the cycling capitals of the Netherlands or of the world. But at the same time, these, you know, the, these heavy investments are going into car infrastructure that, you know, defeats the purpose. So it, it is, it's an, it's a conundrum, you know, a, a good example locally here, um, in uh, in a neighborhood, a very city center neighborhood in Amsterdam called the Pipe, um, the neighborhood um, kind of got together and they wanted to um, have more green space on the city streets, on their streets. And the city was also thinking about how to not only improve uh, landscaping and greenery, but also kind of, you know, climate proof um, Amsterdam. And, um, and at the same time, 
they happen to be also building a state-of-the-art underground parking garage um, right near this, this community. So on one hand, they wanted to reduce car, car parking spaces on street. But on the other hand, they were building this multi-million, dollar, multi-million euro car parking garage underneath a canal next to the Rijksmuseum where, you know, there would be an influx of, of car traffic going into this car parking garage. So it's, it was kind of this, you know, interesting situation where some residents were already, agri- you know, were already forming a, um, a group that was against this parking garage. But those same residents were also very much for, you know, removing parking from the street and, and improving the greenery. Um, so it's interesting. I, so I wouldn't say that it's apolitical. Uh, Kevin, Meredith was, was talking there about um, transport investment. And then when you dig down into uh, which I, I consider a fantastically uh, uh, titled American Jobs Plan, um, just because like who could who could like argue against that? Um, but there's 174 billion dollars for Elon Musk, in effect, and his ilk. In that there's going to be uh, enormous rollout of of charging infrastructure and and just facilities for electric cars. And as we know, as as anybody with a, even a, a modicum of, of common sense would know, but apparently not 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 planners and politicians, an electric car is going to get gummed up in in transport delays just as much as a as a gas-fueled car. So that that does that worry you that there's 174 billion there to basically increase motoring. There's no doubt that <laughs> for those who are concerned about the degree to which cars have already uh, consumed a lot of space in cities that this 174 billion dollars to accelerate the shift to electric vehicles is indeed going to gum up things more uh, along those lines. And so, you know, one part of the nation's climate strategy, we need to move beyond just shifting to electrification. It's time to consider the types of vehicles that we want in our cities as well. And notably, you know, the SUV boom that we've seen over the past decade, that's notably led to a lot of substantial declines in safety. So if we want to think about how we are designing our cities, we need to move beyond just, okay, this typical sized car. And American companies, yes, they're building new types of small electric vehicles too. And so that's where it's going to be interesting as this plan further unfolds and we be, and we become aware of some more, more of the details is that where are the incentives for those small types of vehicles? You know, like Archimodo. You know, these types of vehicles can coexist with people walking and bicycling because of their human scale dimensions. And they can serve the same purpose mm-hmm. as cars, trucks and SUVs. But you know, and, and furthermore, you know, given the fact, Carlton, that more than half of all trips in suburban and urban areas are less than four miles, these types of vehicles could carry most of those t- types of trips in cities, but only if the infrastructure of our streets changes so that more people can feel comfortable using them. And so, see, that that's almost like, it's a, sorry, Kevin, to interrupt you. That's almost like a, a European level of distance of you know average use of a motor car we tend to people in in europe are going to think oh yeah but americans travel 100 miles you know per day in their cars so that that's actually quite a shocking statistic that in effect you're the same as as uh, uh, uh cities in, in europe so 
that is a statistic. Is that averaged out for the whole of the US? And there's places like Houston, it's going to be much, much bigger. What's that? Or how is that stat actually arrived at? Because that's a, a phenomenally surprising stat. Most people are, are simply unaware of this, and that's true. But by virtue of urban areas being urban, most of the services and goods and services that we access within 20 minutes of our home are within four miles. Whether it's by car, whether it's by uh, bike or whatnot. And so this is what propelled my colleague Nancy McGuckin and I a year ago to publish a study in Transport Findings to say exactly, you know, how many times do people actually get in a car and travel less than four miles? And across the urban areas, both the urban core, the first tier suburbs, the second tier suburbs, most of the suburban areas in the US, yes, exactly. Every other time they get in a car, they travel less than four miles. And that's a pretty reliable statistic. I'm not going to say it's the same as what we're seeing in European cities. Uh, and then there is some variation across you know, uh, some cities within the country. But as an average, uh, you can read two or three or four different reliable studies that all point to the same number. Yeah. And, and so this is something that we, we typically just simply don't consider is the um, availability of nearby destinations and the possibility that we can get to them by vehicles other than cars. And so I, I do think that this is an important kind of revelation that we have uh, really seen over the past uh, year with the pandemic. You know, this idea that streets need to alter their character away from auto automobiles is hardly new, but the prospects and helping people realize those prospects, that is new. And so changing our streets to prioritize smaller vehicles rather than cars is a notion, you know, that's really deemed too extreme for elected leaders and citizens alike. But the, um, but the pandemic has really opened up our, our ability to see through this. You know, streets barren of automobiles in 2020 provided a first step to that extreme option. And, you know, if we run with this idea, an, an idea that's typically considered to be outside the range of acceptable op, uh, outcomes, you know, what political economists would refer to as the Overton window, that's really shifted, thereby expanding what's possible. Right. So the pandemic has opened people's eyes to birds. Open their ears to birdsong, open their eyes to less traffic, and they think, I, I want some of that. Could and so when a city planner now comes to them and says, Well, we could do that for you if we if we you know make these interventions, you think that has now changed people's perceptions. The Overton window has been nudged forward. It's been opened considerably, yes. The expectations for how streets should be used were reshaped almost overnight both to improve health outcomes and provide economic opportunity. And so now as the economic, as the economy recovers following the immediacy of the pandemic, you know, we want to try and prevent that window to shift back to transportation conditions that were prior. Keep to the, the Overton window open, please. You know, it, is what you're saying. <laughs> oh yeah, de definitely. And that's what propelled Meredith and I to really look at what's going on in 55 of the largest cities in America to see, oh, wow, how are these cities using their street, spe street space differently? And how can this set the foundation for new types of expectations? Mm -hmm. I, I will get on to your paper in a minute, because that's, that's when we started talking, is right, your paper. And then uh, Buttigieg and the, the American Jobs Plan uh, thing has is, 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 is come in the meantime. Uh, but Meredith, going back to, uh, to the American Jobs Plan, I, I've kind of portrayed it, and, and of course the devil is in the detail uh, we need to actually see what's really genuinely planned here. But just the mood music being put out there on social media and in 
in media interviews, in, in fact, by Mayor Pete, is very much that the day of the automobile is certainly not going to be pandered to as much as in the past. It, it might still be pandered to a bit, but you're going to look at, 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 at other modes are going to be prioritized also. So do you think that uh, he is genuinely going to uh, bring in those changes is it something that he can bring in? Is that something you know a, a progressive politician can do, or there's like the departments underneath are actually going to be a, a, a handbrake on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, what we're what we're facing as a nation, I mean, it just goes beyond the U.S. as well. But is the institution of automobility? Um, so I just I have a hard time imagining how. Um, really, you know, any short-term plan can uproot the labyrinth of administrative, regulatory, political, social, cultural systems that have been favoring the car for the past century. Um, and that's what we're up against. Um, and that includes, you know, things like the MUTCD manual and all these all these codes and legislation and laws that are not only on the national level, but they're at the state level and they're at the regional and local level. So there is a system that is, that is an institution really that is against the plan. And to really unravel that means questioning our, you know, our design restrictions, questioning our public process, are the legal risks, the design guidelines uh, at every one of these levels. So um, that's, you know, that's a really big task. Um, and it's going to take a long time to do that. So I think what the big question is, is how can we reduce, you know, how can we reduce car dependency within the next generation? And this may be the start of it, but it won't be the end of it. So, Kevin, picking up on what Meredith was, was talking about there, and and going back to uh, to Mayor Pete, wh- whenever I talk to Americans about this, uh, and I ask them the, the, roughly the same question, it's always, "Well, he was a mayor, and that's why they call him Mayor Pete still, because he he was able to actually get past that inertia mm-hmm. that Meredith was talking about uh, in the city uh, he he was mayor of." Um, do you share the same optimism there that it, you can you can do something at a city level and translate that to a national, a federal level? Und- undoubtedly. You see that you have a new culture that's really trying to be instilled in, in Washington, D.C. And within the first two months, the secretary of the transportation, the secretary of the Department of Transportation, you know, is saying things that we have not seen said in the previous decades or anywhere close to the types of things. And so he's floating these ideas for the first time in American politics. And yes, you know, it's creating a a certain degree of fur in, in, um, uh, in, in these contexts right now. But the fact that he's saying them and the fact that they are locally derived based on his experiences in South Bend and saying, you know, we can get this done, I think is a really, really exciting uh, opportunity for American politics. Now, the Biden administration at a national level, they're probably not going to be tipping their or stepping their toes so much into these kind of local matters. And so the Biden administration, you know, they're, they, they want to modernize 20,000 miles of roads. We don't know how many of those 20,000 
miles are going to be at the city level versus at the interstate level versus at the county level. But the fact that they are saying things like build back better and fix it first, both of these are laudable aims. Both of these are suggest ways that we can do more with less. And, you know, exactly as Meredith is saying, these outdated kind of industry written laws that lock in street designs from, from prior centuries, they hamper innovation and they reinforce the expectations for how our existing streets are used. But as the details of these plans unfold, and as Mayor Pete continues to, you know, exert his influence over cities and local municipalities, I think we're going to see a lot more of uh, these exciting types of um, initiatives unfold where we can identify solutions to fix some of the root of the problem with space and cities. And Kevin, I've, I've built this and because we, we don't have the detail yet exactly. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm like extrapolating and maybe I'm exaggerating. But from just the, from the reading of, of the American Jobs Plan, you know, the, the deep down into it, and you then add in what what uh, judge has said, you know, in public, you know, out there. Um, this is not a secret. What he's saying about you know we've got to we've got to rein back the the motor car in effect and design for people. Given all of that, I've said that in effect the White House has recognised th- that induced demand exists. Uh, do you think that's a, f- a fair appraisal? of what is coming out of the White House? Or do you think this, as you just mentioned there, you, you don't know how exactly how they're actually going to upgrade those 20,000 roads. It could be up, upgrades for motorists it, at the end of the day. Or do you think that there genuinely is a recognition that, in effect, building roads does not work because it leads to induced demand? The fact that within the first two months, a cabinet member has acknowledged uh, that, yes, we need to build our cities around humans, the fact that a cabinet member has existed or, or has mentioned uh, non-negative aspects about a um, VMT tax, the fact that a cabinet position has said, you know what, the way that we've been doing things over the past decades has been ha- has led to serious problems. I mean, these are all really strong statements. Now, whether or not that suggests that the presidential um, position is going to echo those, you know we got to take these things one day at a time. The fact that we have a new administration and senior rep- representatives in that, med- in that re- um, administration are mentioning these things, I think we need to take those as victories right now. Because if you look at the way that we've been solving our transportation problems for the past God knows how many years, you know, they've been ill-formed. So trying something new and trying to understand where we can look for innovation in the right spirit here uh, is something that they're going to need to continue to, to, to push forward and see how quickly they can move on these things. But again, it's tied to politics, and they're inevitably going to get some resistance against the old way of doing things. Hmm. So Meredith, Kevin is excited. Kevin's optimistic, and he lives there. Uh, you don't live there, but you can, you can maybe look at it from, from a slightly different perspective in that you are 3,000 miles um, away, but you look at these things. How excited are you, or are you perhaps a bit more jaundiced because you live in somewhere where, uh, you know, space has been devoted to these different modes and could it really happen in America? Yeah. And although I am, I don't, you know, live in America, I have been studying several American cities over the past three years very closely in my 
in my PhD research. And, uh, and that includes, you know, interviewing key, key informants, um, several high level officials, uh, every six months or so. Um, and what I have seen is just, and witnessed is such a struggle. (laughs) It's really incredible. Um, you know, people at the local level, civil servants, traffic engineers, uh, transportation planners are really trying. They're really trying hard to innovate. They're, they're trying hard to collaborate and, but also to, uh, to, to create public value out of their transportation systems. Um, but at the same time, they are up against, as I was saying before, um, a slew of barriers. And this, I mean, this is such, it's such a range of barriers um, from, you know, a lack of sort of political commitment or confidence uh, from higher level officials to, you know, legal implications, the, the city, you know, city attorney uh, not wanting to take the, take the risk um, to, uh, to codes and manuals that are incompatible with what they want to build in terms of, you know, bicycle infrastructure or, um, uh, or, or other. Um, and, and, you know, in transit agencies um, who don't see eye to eye with what they're, with what they're doing. So the, the struggle is very real. And I have been in, I have been witnessing this and and examining this, you know, from this outsider perspective or this dual perspective for the past couple of years. So, um, so I echo, I I definitely echo uh, Kevin's enthusiasm about what, uh, what Mayor Pete is saying and what's coming out of the the White House, um, and I can only imagine that the people that I've been um, that I've been interviewing for the past several years are also very excited um, and also seeing it as um, as legitimizing their current work, you know. And that was one of the biggest things too that came out of uh, what what I've been studying is the recognition of uh of transportation planners who are trying their hardest to you know connect all these pieces and build transfer transportation systems that provide choices for people um that recognition from city council from the mayor from the city manager um the, the or even the the um the department head you know that recognition is really really valuable and it helps them it helps them recognize that the pathway forward is the right pathway forward okay so you are excited that's good and at that 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 uh, let's let's keep that excitement uh, uh primed for the next uh, half of the show because right now uh, I, I would like to cut to a commercial break with david Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart 
because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Uh, Thanks, David. And we are back. Uh, with this particular episode of the Spokesman uh, podcast, uh, and we've got uh, Meredith and we've got Kevin, and uh, we've been discussing the American Jobs Plan and and Mayor Pete Buttigieg's fantastic, I think we can all out now agree, fantastic um, uh, input and, and, and changing uh, input into into potentially what can happen in the future uh in America, I'd now like to to we'll, we'll still continue on. We'll, we'll we'll definitely touch on this 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 that, that subject again. But now I'd like to go into uh, your paper uh, and and what, what you first contacted me with. And and I did pick out some key phrases, and and a lot of these have now been uh, potentially even superseded by by the, the American Jobs Plan because you wrote this paper clearly uh, long before that came out. But you're talking. I'm going to quote back to you here, and you can you can tell me what it's all about. But you're talking about deep transport reform. Uh, you're talking about bold narratives in your paper. This is what things have got to to happen, and then we're going to have to accelerate uh, with aggressive uh, reform, and we've got to de-emphasize cars. So, Meredith, first. Um, is has all of those things that you've put uh, in, in your paper there? Do do you think they are going to come to fruition with with the American Jobs Plan? There's definitely a chance. Uh, I think the you know COVID uh, COVID induced street experiments, as we call them in our our paper, um, opened a lot of eyes, um, especially on the local level, um, and. This has this has really opened the aperture for um, for cities for regions on what our streets can be used as what you know not necessarily even as as um, as avenues of movement but also for you know economic recovery for social connection and social cohesion. I mean, we talk a lot about you know smaller vehicles and human scale vehicles and and um, and sustainable mobility, but realizing that our streets make up you know one third of our of the space in cities, this is a huge urban asset, and um, and I think that the pandemic has shown that this is an asset worth investigating and exploring on what role it has to play in society that maybe it's not just for movement of cars, but it can be 
so many other things. Roads are not built for cars. I know somebody who wrote a book about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, a great book. For, a great book. <laughs> uh, thank you for allowing me to get that in. Thank you. Uh, and Kevin, oh, sorry, sorry. But, so we're going to get some of this. Oh, sorry. Well, just one more, one more point, and then and. And I think what our, our study showed is that some cities were more ready mm. than others to have their eyes opened. Um, they, you know, they already had some pre-existing plans in place and the pandemic galvanized momentum for those plans. Um, but the study also showed that they were, you know, they are hampered by these institutional restrictions, public process, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but when the cities designated, you know, staff time and, I mean, obvious human capital and human resources to deploying these uh, these slow streets or, or other other types of street experiments, when these these street street experiments became feasible in that way, um, that's when we saw a lot more success. That's when we saw a lot more cities being able to deepen their programs or lengthen their programs or even expand their programs. Um, so it, there does seem to be some key aspects to how it can accelerate, you know, an alternative mobility future that is less car mm. emphasized. And Kevin, Meredith mentioned street experiments then. It's in your paper. And then uh, also in your paper is um, the phrase slow streets. Now, in a UK perspective, we, we now call those, uh, I don't know if you've, you've come across this phrase, but we call them LTNs, low traffic neighbourhoods. And again, I don't know how much you, 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 you've, you've seen what's been happening in the UK, but that, that's been a bete noire. That's been an absolute red rag to a bull, the, the, the remodelling of streets. So street experiments uh, in the last, during COVID, basically, uh, in the last year, have led to the most amazing explosion in antipathy between neighbours that has been picked at by the mass media, including the BBC, um, who who will just, you know, they love pitching, by the looks of it, neighbour against neighbour. So you get one neighbour who's for a street experiment and you get another neighbour who is very car dependent, who is against uh, any form of, of street experiment. They want the status quo. They want to be able to drive everywhere. So my question is, how popular, the, the things that are in your paper, how genuinely popular are they with the mass of the population uh, in, in, in the US? And how much of it is pure optimism? And people like you and me who want to see these things are, are basically projecting uh, onto onto people as a as a populist thing and in fact it's, it's not popular at all where do you sit on that particular spectrum of popularity well look as a society and particularly as an american society we have been conditioned to basically think of one way to get around town and that streets are simply a conduit for cars right now enter stage right a completely different purpose for what streets should be serving and those who are, you know, more leaning politically left, they want to see something different. Why? Well, because they realize that the way that we've designed streets have had really deleterious effects on, well, shall we say the environment, on safety, on issues of equity. Now, if you don't care about those three things, safety, equity, the climate, 
you know, you're going to continue going down the path of just the status quo. There's nothing wrong with what we're doing right now. There's nothing wrong other than, you know, maybe I'm going to have a few more minutes of congestion uh, on, on my commute or, you know, going to the supermarket. But if we are serious as a nation about wanting to tackle any one of those things, much less all three of those things, it really does suggest doing something different, okay? Now, we're not talking about any typical intervention that can shift uh, our culture overnight because it's so firmly ingrained and we're dealing with such a mature system of automobile infrastructure. So, you know, we're not trying to shift the direction of a single aircraft carrier. We are trying to shift multiple fleets of aircraft carriers here, right? Now, the silver lining, Carlton, I see, is that we've been talking about these issues until we're blue in the face. I'm going to sound a little bit long in the tooth here, but for 25 years, we've been battling the same types of rhetoric. Oh, we need to do something different. Oh, we need to put more bikes in. Oh, we need to create more transit systems. But for the past 25 years, you know, not much action has really resulted. And it's like a metaphor to a a mocha pot, right? You you keep talking about these things, you keep talking about these things, and nothing really happens. And then all of a sudden, wow, cool. You know, the water heats up, it generates steam. This increases the pressure in the bottom chamber, pushes the water up through the coffee granules into the top chamber, where it's then ready 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 to be poured, right? Now, if we think about a metaphor and how that's analogous to where we sit now, yeah, a lot of these problems have been generating considerable amount of attention for years, but COVID really allowed us to see through a new type of opportunity and the value and the public asset that these streets provide. And so I think that's interesting. Now, where the public thinks that we should go with that, nobody really knows, but we do know that we need to do something different. And so that's what we're trying to do in this paper is to highlight the effects that doing something different could have long-lasting new foundations for a new new type of transportation system. And it was only because, you know, Seattle has been talking Mm -hmm. about these things. I lived in Seattle from 1996 until 2001. Those different types of uh, conversations, they were exactly the same. There was nothing different about those conversations 20 years ago right now. You know, when I was on the Bicycle Advisory Board with Bill Nye, the science guy, in t- in the year 2000, we were talking about the crumbling infrastructure in Seattle. Now, owing to COVID, there was a window that really opened up. And they said, whoa, you know, we can, we can do something. And so Seattle was one of the first to jump at, into action, right? And they've long been striving for more equitable access for more people on their streets. And right when this, the, the pandemic you know, when the lockdown began, the city quickly unfurled a 30-page playbook to how to use their street space better. That was impressive because of the steam that has been generating for so many years that they now were enabled to act upon. What about WFH? Where does the, where working from home fit into this? Because if, if people... You, you've got to go for a bicycle commute, you know, to recreate your, your bicycle work commute. You, you're... you're Maybe some people do that in their cars too. So the fact that the pandemic has not just opened people's eyes to to uh, what streets can do, it can also maybe open uh, corporations' eyes to we don't have to have people in city centres anymore in, in expensive offices. We can all just have them out in the suburbs. Does that not mean 
you don't need these transport uh, transformations anymore. Or if you do, you actually need um, transformations to happen, uh, more car orientated uh, infrastructure. Kevin? What, uh, under what condition would you think that you'd need more car oriented infrastructure? Well, the pandemic has, has frightened people away from transit. It, yeah. it might not have frightened people away from um, from from bicycles because that's an individualized open air form of, of transport. But cars have become incredibly attractive, you know, for a whole different reason. So cars, you know, previously, you know, status reasons, sex reasons, all sorts of different reasons why cars have always been uh, uh, fantastic, convenience, all of these different things. But now you have the added uh, benefit of you're no longer you're in a, 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 a kind of like a, a safe space away from the, the virus. So people are just jumping into their cars more. So shouldn't we be encouraging to building for, for more car infrastructure because people are going to want to be in their cars? Yeah, the whole notion of using uh, cars as a PPD, a personal protection device, frankly, it's folly. And we're going to get we're going to see transportation systems evolve past this. Now, the great unknown is everybody tries to look into the crystal ball and figure out what the heck's going to happen with respect to commute patterns and overall, you know, types of VMT. You know, nobody knows the answers to these things. And yes, there's going to be a decline in the economic vitality of downtown areas as their business uh, and and multi-level uh, uh, multi-level skyscrapers, you know, become a little bit more obsolete, right? However, what this does suggest, I think, is that there's increasing pressure being sent, being placed on the sense of place in communities. All right, and so more people are going to want to invest more heavily in the areas that are within a quarter mile, a half mile, three miles of where so the they the work. fifteen-minute city kind of concept. Yeah, the fifteen twenty-minute city, and so if we try to prize that as a new form of, it's, it, there's nothing new about it. Uh, other than the fact that people are talking about it more now, right? And so if we prize that as a new paradigm, what that really does suggest is that we don't need this exhaustive infrastructure that has been so uh, carefully manipulated and so carefully sold to us for the past number of years. There is, you know, that that excess uh, vehicle space that's sitting in cities, it's a liability and it can be repurposed. Kevin, we've seen we've seen during the pandemic when when the emergency pop ups, when the, the the bike lanes went in, an awful lot of blame for lack of retail sales in the downtown areas was suddenly put on these these emergency bike lanes. And of course, it's just you you wouldn't need to be a rocket scientist to understand. No, it was the pandemic. That's why people aren't shopping. That's why people aren't going into bars. It's not the bike lanes. But an awful lot of um, uh, politicians and planners and 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 letters to to social media and, and newspapers etc have blamed bicycle lanes. So, do you think going forward that any changes that actually happen will will then be uh, will be blamed on um, the, the the lack of um, vitality in city centers will be blamed on, on, on bike lanes. Yeah. There's always going to be a culprit to every single social change that happens. And when I say a culprit, you know, there's going to be some sort of disruption in uh, the, the economic system. 
And so for that economic system, it's going to result in, you know, negative uh, impacts for some and positive impacts for others. But we have to look at these things over the long term, Carlton. Uh, you know, a lot of these cities were, for example, uh, saying that they couldn't adopt these slow street programs. Why? Because they were going to be too expensive. Well, again, that's folly. They're too expensive in the short term over this month, next month, and maybe four months from now. Because why? Well, they need to have type three MUTC barriers. And, you know, where are they going to get those? They're going to need to rent them. And there are, their offices are already economically strained. And now we're going to have to hire more professionals and more personnel to move these signs and, and make sure that they're placed in the, and now we're going to have to monitor it. This is all folly. Why? Because we're doing something different. But over the long run, if we look at how we're spending, how we've been spending uh, transportation infrastructure money to support cars, and we look at a new model, a new paradigm, and, you know, try to um, monetize it over 10, 20 years, we're going to see that we're going to be winning out in, in the long run, undoubtedly. Mm. Meredith, you live in a country, and I also live in a country, uh, and this is different to, to where Kevin lives, um, but we, we live in countries where there's pretty hefty gas taxes. You know, you, 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 you have to pay a lot for your petrol, for your fuel, your to, to fuel a car. Um, that's going to slightly change, of course, mm-hmm. with, with electric cars. But right now, um, with a, you know, it's still a gas-powered um, transport economy, um, where we live has those gas taxes. America, you know, famously, you know, I, I know people might complain at, at the amount of gas tax they've got to pay, but it's nothing compared to what we Europeans pay. So, in the, the in in the American jobs plan, in the in the run up to to the release of this, uh, an awful lot of uh, intelligent uh, commentators were saying, "Well, obviously, there's going to have to be you know increases in, in in the gas tax. There might even have to be um, you know pay per mile uh, schemes put in." None of those were in the plan. Do do you see that as a missed opportunity? Do you think it's going to be brought in in the future? What what, what do you think was was happening with with gas taxes and with road pricing? Uh, yeah, that would definitely like, to get into details of the economics would have to be. I would refer you to my colleague at Decisio, who does who is an expert at social cost benefit analysis of uh, transportation and and active transport infrastructure. Um, but I mean, at the at the core of it, you know, there's been some great research out of uh, of the Netherlands, but also in Denmark, that for every kilometer driven in a car, we lose 16 cents as a society. And for every kilometer ridden by bike, we gain 23 cents. Um, so, I mean, despite the, the, in spite of the economic uh, debate and, and VMT and um, I mean, there's, of course, there's going to have to be a way to fund it. Um, but but as Kevin said, looking at looking at this type of infrastructure as an investment in the long run, and in compared to uh, not only the infrastructure of of cars, but also what cars are doing to the society, uh, there's a huge gain, uh, and that is undisputed. But it hasn't been brought in in this plan. For, for, for again, you know, for almost a century, there has been an asset that cities have had in their back pocket, and they've basically given it away for free. So, you know, right, road pricing, trying to charge the user pays principle, has long been criticized over equity issues, 
But to be clear, you know, all taxes, including today's fuel taxes, they're distortive. So, you know, we don't want to excessively subsidize road travel, which has a lot of negative externalities. So in this respect, you know, VMT taxes, they're a good thing. Editorial note here, VMT stands for Vehicle Miles Traveled. Okay, back to Kevin. But we haven't been able to politically crack that nut in the United States. So we sit there as, as 18 cents uh, a gallon continues to go into the coffers in Washington, D.C. Now, we need to change that. Everybody knows that we need to change that. We've been talking about the need to change that. for <laughs> There's no shortage of ink that's been spilled about the need to change that. But finally, we're starting to talk about it again. And we're not going to do it by raising the gas tax. We're going to raise it by raising, you know, the... Uh, by by imposing or basically enforcing a user pays principle, and those who really do make the most uh, in, uh, detriment to the types of infrastructure, those who use the, these types of infrastructure, there's no reason why they shouldn't be held accountable to pay. Kevin, you you know because this will always be the thing that that's brought up if you you appear on like local media on these topics. It's, it's a regressive tax. So in effect, it, it actually impacts poor people more than rich people. So that's, that's always been the, 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 the thing that's, that people, probably rich people actually, uh, use against um, any form of, of road pricing in that you're actually pricing not the rich people off the roads. They'll carry on driving. It, you're pricing the poor people off the roads. So it's regressive. So where do you stand on, on that particular issue? As a society, we need to do a better job of providing people alternatives. And once they realize the value of these alternatives, and once they realize that, oh, we have something that we're not being forced into, therefore, we can take advantage of that. Yes, I'm just as concerned as the next person about the regressive nature of some of these vehicular taxes that that, that come forth. But again, if we continue to do the same types of things that we've been doing in our transportation practices for the past number of years, it's like banging our head against the wall. We're not going to get to where we need to go to address some of these major issues and major crises that we're dealing with from a safety perspective, from an environmental perspective, and from an equity perspective, again, over the long term. So if you think about, if, if, if you think about, uh, how much it costs to provide uh, access to a transportation system? Uh, yes, you need to buy. You know, the cheapest you can get into it basically is a uh, some sort of economical uh, Nissan, right? However, uh, you know, as technology continues to flourish and as the costs of these electric bikes and maybe even small cars continues to decline, you can get into a transportation system at a much more affordable level. You know, for just a, 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 a mere $100, I could put a, or two or three or $400, I can put electric motor on my Schwinn that's hanging in the garage. And I can do almost as good as what I want to do uh, with a car. However, I can't because the transportation system so heavily favors car travel. Fast moving, deadly <laughs> car travel. But the industry is fast moving too, uh, Carlton, and that really suggests the importance of taking advantage of these kind of windows of opportunity that have been opened uh, to us. And so 
I, I do think that that's where if we can kind of seize this moment, we hate to look at the pandemic and say that there's anything associated in, in a silver lining perspective with the pandemic. But this truly is a silver lining. And these types of in, in investments and these types of street changes that we've, we've seen, if we can get more out of them and we can continue to nurture them to build more uh, human scaled networks in cities, that really would, is going to lead to a, a golden ticket. And, and if I just can add, you know, most of the infrastructure already exists, right? I think that's the beauty of it. And I think that's the beauty of, of the street experiments and sort of also what our paper showed is that this infrastructure is there. The road space is there. It just needs reallocation and sandbags and sandwich boards in, you know, during this time of pandemic that we've seen cities use, these materials are, are cheap, they're easy to, you know, access and to procure. And it, you know, they needed the human, human capital to get people out there uh, implementing it, and also people to evaluate it and see how it was going and engage with the public, of course. But the infrastructure is there. It just needs reallocation. Where do you both stand on the very, very thorny issue of um, infrastructure? Bicycling is obviously a social good, but it's also something that not everybody kind of wants. So it's almost a, it's not just a, well, it is a carrot and stick in that you have the carrot, which is the bicycle infrastructure. But you also have to have a stick, which is saying you've got to get out of your car. You don't just supply the bicycle infrastructure. You've also got to actually get people out of cars and using this this, this, this infrastructure. Where do you stand on uh, how big a stick, how big a carrot and, and, and which is which? What we what we want is informed by what we know. And the, right now, the only thing that we know is this huge bifurcation between either you get in a Ford Taurus. Well, no, okay, you don't get in a Ford Taurus anymore. You get in a Ford F-150. Or you get in this rinky-dink little thing over here. Now, again, owing to the issues that we've been talking about, that landscape, that context, that continuum is getting a lot more murky. And so what we're, being, uh, what we're becoming aware of are different types of, of mobility innovations. So what we want is being informed by what we know, but what we know is really changing really rapidly. So, you know, pitting the car against the bike and pitting the bike against the car, I, I do think that that's very 1990s. And we can evolve our conversations uh, p- past this. And those who, you know, are a little bit more, well, innovatively thinking, we can say, okay, this would be cool if we could have this alternative that's provided to us. And so there's two there's two levers to that, though. The first is allowing that innovative, those innovative mobility practices to flourish. And right now, that market is suppressed. Why is it suppressed? Because there's nowhere in our streets yeah. to use them. And mm-hmm. one one other um, statistic I like to refer to is the 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 group of people who are interested but concerned. You know, can amount to up to like thirty percent of the population. These are this is a group that doesn't ride a bike or other type of two or three wheel device. They're only mostly car drivers, but they're interested in switching maybe some of their trips to another form that's not a bicycle that's not a car. So this is a huge segment of the population and recognizing that not all trips 
have to be by bicycle. You're not, you're not, you know, forced into any trip with any certain mode, but that it can be an option. Um, that's, so that would be one point. And then the other point I wanted to, um, I wanted to bring up was one of the lessons that a policymaker in, in one of my studies shared with me, which, which was that this person realized while they were learning about bicycling in the Netherlands and in Sevilla, Spain, that, that, that it wasn't necessarily something uh, that transportation wasn't necessarily something that it was only about me individually, you know, that, Hey, maybe if, maybe if you only want to take a car, that's fine. But you know what? Someone else might want that option. So it's sort of that existential perspective of, and that shared perspective of understanding that it isn't just me. It's also about my community it's about someone who doesn't own a car or doesn't have access to an Uber or Lyft. You know, that that person can ride a bike and will be safe doing it. And that's something that, that this policymaker has used in justifying and, uh, and arguing for these types of innovations on streets. Yeah. Um, Carlton, if I could just kind of add mm-hmm. on to that in reference to the uh, Buttigieg issue that you were bringing forth before. If, if, if I was a politician, I would want to be looking at infrastructure investment in terms of big projects, in terms of glorious you know, impact, right? And that's the typical way that we have looked at infrastructure projects in the past is, well, how is this going to radically change your life how is this going to add more uh, jobs, et cetera? What we're suggesting is not something that is politically sexy, right? We're suggesting something that takes advantage of what we have already in terms of our existing infrastructure investments and repurposing it. So it's going to require a different type of political saleability. However, it's not completely crazy. And, you know, Oftentimes, people look at this proposal that Meredith and I have been talking about for a year or two or three about repurposing our existing streets, and they say, no, it's not going to work. You know, it's, it's like uh, it's a bridge too far. People aren't going to be able to politically accept it. And so it's just like, you know, where many of us met in Arnhem and Nijmegen, that was where the you know, 1974 book, A Bridge Too Far, uh, tried to document the Allies' disastrous attempts to capture the German-controlled bridges in the Netherlands during World War II, you know. The, the metaphor here is is comparable, and so we could use that to describe things that are just barely out of reach, either strategically, financially, or personally. And right now, yes, what we are suggesting is a bridge too far. But if we don't necessarily work to enforce uh, some of the foundation or reinforce some of the foundation that allows these smaller vehicles to come to fruition in cities... Uh, you know, we're, we're, again, we're going to be doing the same thing. So we need to uh, we need to kind of figure out ways. And politicians and Buttigieg, this is one of the strongest recommend, recommendations that I have for him is to you know ensure that there is faith in the ability for the American road system to innovate and become more pedestrian and human scaled focused, and not necessarily just continue to exasperate the steps that with that that um, stifle innovation on our streets so that that was one uh suggestion that you've given to uh Buttigieg there 
Now, before we started recording, in fact, a wee while before we started recording, in fact, it was the email uh, of tennis before we we we, uh, we started the, the, the show, I gave you some homework because you asked me, Kevin, you asked me uh, what, what kind of zinger questions you're going to be throwing at us. And I said, well, I don't actually know. I, I just, I just, the questions come up organically during the, the show itself. However, there's, there was this one question uh, which I gave you, which which you must now um, give me the answers to because you, you, you researched this in depth because I gave it to you in advance. <laughs> and you only uh, gave me one part of it there. And that is, if you uh, were Mayor Pete um, in this elevated role as Secretary of Transportation, what would be your five priorities? So starting with you, Kevin, and then we'll we'll go to Meredith. And, and maybe, Meredith, you're going to have the same priorities. As, as Kevin, I don't know, but let's let's just see. So, Kevin, your your five priorities if you were Mayor Pete in his role right now. Well, I'd like to say at the outset that uh, one always gets into a little bit of troubles the as soon as they start coloring outside of their lanes. So, I realize that Mayor Pete is the Secretary of Transportation, and in so in this post, he's responsible for all aspects of transportation: rail, air, logistics, maritime, everything across the. Uh, the, the full gamut. The recommendations that I have for him are much more pared down to if we were to consider how to really radically improve the quality of life for where four out of every five Americans live. And that again, that is in cities, in suburban areas, four out of five Americans live in urban areas. We can really move the needle very quickly. But to do, to do so, we need to rethink a lot of different initiatives. So the first is to really just get out of the way. Get out of the way, and what by that mean, work to break down some of the laws, the design standards, the regulatory structures that stifle innovation. There's no shortage of, of, of current uh, rules that are on the books that stifle innovation. The second is to... Uh, really provide incentives for smaller vehicles to thrive in, in, in the form of both uh, electric charging stations and uh, in, in the form of really seeing how they can more uh, proliferate in, in cities. The third is to provide uh, increased funding for any type of incentive that, that allows these types of um, uh, th th these types of initiatives to trickle down into cities. Okay, uh, cities are hurting financially right now, particularly with with respect to co to COVID. And if we can put forth a a, uh, a a strategy where you know new resources would be allowed uh, be available for them to try things that they haven't tried in the past, that would go a huge a, a long way. The fourth is to really help a public outreach campaign which goes to what I was saying earlier. You know, if we continue to do the things that we've been doing, we're going to continue to bang our head against the wall. We need to try and do something different. We need to innovate, okay? And uh, that really requires allowing the public to be brought on board. Uh, and there's no shortage of public participation strategies that will allow that to come to fruition. I'm happy to talk more about them. And the, five, and the fifth is to lead by example. I think he's doing uh, some things along those lines right now. But really to say, whoa, you know what? Uh, look, 
Our Secretary of Transportation is serving as a role model in the way he gets around town. Let's try to replicate some of that. So Meredith, coming to you, and, and I'm going to ask you the, 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 the same questions, but he, he is doing a rutter. He's, he's cycling to work. So that, that's, that, that, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one of mine. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely, yeah, that was definitely one of mine from the get-go is um, instilling this, um, this pride in, in, you know, and role modeling um, what you can do as a citizen, which is, yeah, to ride. And, you know, it's, again, it's not necessarily a, a bike, but, but, um, but other types of other types of ways of getting around. Um, and I, I would hope that also means, you know, when he if he's in other places in the US visiting, that he and his staff also get around by using the local bike share or um, hopping on one of the, you know, the kick scooters or whatever. Um, that would be a great way to show the public, um, you know, those who voted for him, for, for Biden or not, that, you know, I can do this and I can get around. And that's been a major, um, a major point of, um, uh, in our own research here that in, in the Netherlands, that the act of royalty and the prime minister and mayors, uh, political officials, you know, being seen right around t- riding uh, riding their bicycle around town, but also being photographed uh, on you know very average normal bicycles uh, is something that has showed that there's you know that there's a a cultural heritage around this, um, and it's also a demonstration that they are one of the Dutch people, right? That they are no better or you know worse; they're just like a regular person. Um, and so I think that's also an interesting aspect of it, that he doesn't have to be riding on, you know, the most recent, um, what was the bicycle you mentioned before, mm-hmm. you know, $2,000 bicycle. Like, let's let's see him on your average Schwinn that's from the local shop, you know. I think that would be really great. Um, yeah, so that was that was definitely one of my um, one of my points. And I don't, I don't think I really have five. I think it can be boiled down to three, one being the playing a role model. Um, but, and many of my points also echo Kevin's, especially around um, design guidelines and restrictions around uh, what to, how to, how to design streets, um, but really giving cities what they need Um and again, you know, I am not an expert on national level policy. Um, my, my research focuses on the local level and regional level. So, regard, yeah, regardless of of uh, all the other obligations he has within transportation, but when it comes to streets and and uh, and roads, um, I think empowering cities to do what they need to do. Um, it, that would be very um, that would be that would move the the needle forward um, in terms of funding, in terms of restrictions, um, public process, legal risk, design guidelines, all those things. Uh, cities are all unique. And that he's a mayor is a true asset because he understands what that means at the local level. But not all cities are are strong mayor cities. So, uh, in fact, you know, it's about half and half that there's a there's a strong mayor system or a, or a council manager system, 
Um, so every city has its own unique governance processes, its own um, relationships with the state transportation departments, its its own stakeholders. Uh, and so really letting them lead the way would be really uh, would be really great. But on the other hand, at the national level, I would be really curious to explore some sort of national sustainable mobility strategy for reducing car dependency within one generation. Uh, a lot of cities are producing such documents as a roadmap to, for their future. Um, and I think at a national level, I, I don't know what that would look like, but I think it would provide cities and, uh, and states um, legitimacy to move, to keep moving forward uh, and also, you know, articulate visions that are beyond the status quo. I mean, if we want to reduce single occupancy car trips from what they are now, which is 75 to 80%, to even just below 50%, which is what you see in a lot of these sustainable urban mobility plans uh, in U.S. cities right now, um, is to achieve below 50% then, you know, we really need to empower the urban regions with the tools and resources they need to become that multimodal transportation uh, or to offer multimodal transportation networks and to build them faster. So, I mean, that's, it's a big, it would be a big undertaking, I understand, but I think it could really produce a guideline for that's how a to big, move big forward. That's a big list, Brent. Well, Carl... <laughs> Yeah, but that's a big list. We can really boil it down to one thing here, Carlton, and that's to and that's to be a leader in 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 this space. Elected officials, practitioners, practitioners, advocates, researchers, we've all been talking about the same thing here, and that's to seek for ways to people to easily get around using vehicles that are environmentally, economically, socially sound. So first, these vehicles should be quiet and emit as little carbon as possible. They should prioritize the simplest, effective solution with the fewest negative consequences. And third, you know, not all technical experts and policy advocates agree here, but these vehicles should mostly operate at speeds that allow space to be shared between many different types of users doing many different types of things and be space efficient in their own right. We don't need more research. We don't need more regression analyses to suggest that these are three principles that leaders should basically stand behind to prioritize in evolving transportation systems. So I applaud Mayor Pete coming out of the gate, a guns blazing, by saying very, you know, uh, optimistic and, you know, somewhat kind of suspect ideas that are going to create a little bit of uh, rankle in, in, in some people. But if he continues to lead in these ways to prioritize these types of um, components of a transportation system that I've just articulated, you know, we're going to be a lot better off than we are if we just continue to go in this kind of four-year cycle, four-year cycle where politicians are trying to uh, achieve glamour for the latest and greatest infrastructure project. Mm. Now, in your paper, uh, I, one thing that I haven't mentioned so far, which I did pick out, which which is, I think, is apposite here, is... Uh, you're talking about uh, all of these things of which we talk about today uh, are the undeniable direction uh, in the 22nd century. So that's kind of a long way away. 22nd century. Is that what you meant? You meant that far away? That's, that, that's how long it's going to take? 
no, that's not how long it's going to take. We can, we can make noticeable change on these initiatives within the next uh, five, 10 years. However, if you look way into the future, which that was intended to kind of suggest, oh, wow, if we look way into the future, you know, we are likely going to be still operating as humans. We're still not going to be robots. We're still not going to, we're still going to want our autonomy in terms of how we travel. And it's clear that the, there's more writing on the wall to suggest that allowing and amplifying humans to get around in ways that are quicker and more nimble are going to win out in the long run. And if we, pri- if we prize the human-scaled technology and mobility and personal skill, mo- mo- mobility innovations in this respect, that's what's going to win out in the long run. And so I, I, I do think that we can kind of hold out hope for those the, those types of innovations, whether that whether they come in five years or whether they come in eighty five years. I hope it's five years. <laughs> well, it, it, yes, Kevin and Meredith, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you ever so much for for, for talking to me today. Now, n- now is the chance to um, plug your paper. I, I will, I will, of course, provide a link uh, to the paper if if the URL that you're going to suggest is this gobbledygook. Um, which which academic papers often are. Um, uh, but where where can we find your paper? It's open. It's open source, though, Carlton. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, I, right? I, it's fantastic. I wasn't I didn't have to ask you for the PDF, which I often have to ask academics. So I, I, I grant you that. Absolutely brilliant. Um, but where can where can people get a hold of it uh, simply without clicking through? Uh, about 15,000 URL digits. Uh, well, you can definitely go to urbancyclinginstitute.com and all of our work is featured there with links directly to all of our studies and papers. Thanks there to Meredith Glazer and Kevin Kryzak. And thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found, as always, on the-spokesmen.com. The next show will be an interview with academics and authors John Puka and Ralph Mueller. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.